RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Fizz Hydration Tablets, the convenient way to get your hydration needs vitamins and minerals covered in one easy tablet to get a discount of 20 percent, use the code sport 20 at their checkout yes welcome back to episode 64 of the rugby renegade podcast my name is jamie bain and today i interviewed jason t from durban university uh, jason's got heaps of experience in rugby in the uk and south africa uh, and we talk a lot about <clears throat> the chronic acute uh, workload ratio um, and some of the pitfalls and then he kind of suggests how to approach return to play following COVID nineteen? Um, so it's tons of tons of other stuff as well. Um, really interested about the, his work on multidisciplinary teams, um, and I'm sure you'll get tons from it. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. It's great to have you on. Let's start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning, and who you've worked with. Uh, Jamie, first of all, thanks very much for for having me. Um, it's a real real pleasure to be on here. Um, so I, I guess, um, I started out like, like many guys do in that, um, I wasn't so sure what I wanted to do after school and I ended up uh, enrolling for a sports science degree because it had the word sport in the title. <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of muddled my way through that, um, picking up some odd jobs, coaching here and there. Um, but really my start in strength and conditioning was, I was working at a, at a school in Johannesburg, King Edward VII School, and uh, they built a fantastic new facility. Uh, the, the headmaster was a bit of a visionary at, at the time, um, and they had this brilliant gym, uh, but they hadn't hired any staff for it, really. So um, it, it ended up falling to me because they were like, oh, well, you should probably know something about this. Um, and it was just a, a really brilliant opportunity. I spent spent eight years there, um, and it was an opportunity with a blank slate to just really sort of learn learn what to do in a in a weight room. Um, and it it worked out really well. It um, we got lots of great improvements. Uh, the the sportsmen at the school did did well as a result. Um, and it started leading leading to other t- opportunities for me. I guess because our sportsmen were doing well. Um, I, I sort of got a bit of a reputation. So on the back of that, I was, I was invited to um, to be the strength and conditioning coach for Bits University Rugby Club, who plays in the in the Varsity Cup in South Africa, um, which is, I mean, it's an amateur competition, but mo- many of the players from that walk straight into professional contracts after that. Um, and I also was uh, got the opportunity to join the, the Golden Lions as a sports scientist PhD student working with their, their GPS monitoring. Um, so yeah, that gave me a few, um, a few diverse opportunities and, and I was constantly coaching schoolboys also. And then at the end of my PhD, um, I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to, to go to Leeds Beckett University, not as a student this time, but as a lecturer. Um, and I taught on the sports coaching course there, uh, teaching their, some of their strength and, and conditioning modules. Um, and then um, 
you know, the UK industry is just so big and it, it was so cool. Um, so many opportunities presented themselves. So while I was there, I coached the university second rugby side as a technical tactical coach rather than an S&C coach. Um, I spent a year working with the Leeds Rhinos women's team um, in the first year of the, the Women's Super League. And I also hooked up with the, the Denmark Sevens rugby team. And I spent two, seven, two seasons with them as their strength and conditioning coach. So that pretty much brings us up to today. Yeah, cool. So, tons of experience in rugby. And, and interesting, I didn't know that you, you worked as a technical tactical rugby coach as well. It'll be interesting. We're going to talk later about kind of multidisciplinary teams. And I imagine that experience will will help you in that that regard. Um, but first, I want to want to strike while the iron's hot. And I recently read your, your article about the pitfalls of the acute chronic uh, workload ratio. Um, uh, what was it called? The acute chronic workload ratio, science or religion. Um, and could you kind of expand on kind of the key points from that article and, and your opinion on it and, and perhaps how we should do things or how we should look at things? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and thanks for, for getting hold of me on the back of that. Uh, what I want to just start out by saying is, um, you know, this is by no means me having a pop at, at any of the, the researchers that have, have worked on the acute chronic load. Um, I know how difficult research is. Um, and in fact, I've, I've met Tim Gabbard before and, and he's a real stand-up bloke who'd be a, a real credit to any organization he's working with. Um, you know, that article that I wrote was more a, a case of me as a practitioner trying to make sense of, of all of the information that's, that's out there um, on this topic. And um, I guess what's happened is if you think about it, the acute chronic training load was, or workload ratio, was sensational. I, I remember being at the, um, at the training load con conference at, at Aspire in Qatar, and it was just all anyone in sports science was talking about. And, and we, we just so quickly and so rapidly jumped on this idea. And the reason why I think we, we all did that was that, you know, forget the, what the, the research said and the, and the statistics, it was, was just such a sticky concept and it was such an such a easy to digest concept. I think that what it did was it, it created this, this kind of bridge between sports scientists and, and technical tactical coaches where the sports scientist was in the past really the, the training load police and saying, oh, don't do that, be careful of that, try and do a little bit, of, little bit less of that. And that doesn't endear them to coaches at all because you know coaches coaches understand that they've got to push their athletes. So you know the acute chronic ratio idea gave us this this tool to be able to communicate and say no, look, we we're not saying that you you mustn't do a lot, but let's uh, let's think about what we need to do and think about how we can get to those training loads safely and progressively. Um, and it's it really, I think, it brought sports scientists to the table because they suddenly had something, something more to offer than, than cautionary tales. They had a, a method of, of helping you um, ensure your performance. So, I mean, fast forward to today and, you know, despite the, the, the appealingness, I guess, of, of the, the concept, 
you know, what's starting to happen is that um, researchers are, are probably just taking more time and thinking more, more deeply about it. Maybe some of the initial science was a bit rough and ready. And now that we, um, we're unpacking it and, and more people are, are interested in it and it's getting scrutinized more co closely, um, some, of the, some of the assumptions and some of the methods underpinning the acute chronic ratio are, are not holding up to that, that further inspection. So, you know, now we've got, got the situation where we've got a, a really, really popular idea um, that, you know, helps as a, as a heuristic. It's, it's, a, it's useful for us because we can, can think about a, a structure to our training to, to help us get from point A to, to point B. But, you know, the, the actual statistical underpinnings of it are not, not probably there the way that we thought that they were. Yeah, and I think we've had Tim Gabbert on as a guest on the podcast, and and he'd say as well that, and I'm sure he has said that even, um, you know, looking at the acute chronic workload uh, ratio, it, it just suggested that there was more risk, and, and and you know sometimes you've got to kind of push the risk if you want to push the the envelope of athletes' performance. He, he kind of said you've got to be aware of it. it. Doesn't necessarily mean you don't push it, but you know it it was like you say it was used to kind of be a bit more pragmatic with prescription rather than having these big spikes in training load um and, and i guess also like I say it's um a small bit of research in a very you know vast um you know vast loads of data on this type of stuff and it's it's still early days in in, in sports science so you know tons of stuff is gonna you know develop over time and and change you know how we think about things like that so um yeah good points now we spoke off air about this and kind of the situation we find ourselves with COVID-19 and players have been, you know, in isolation training at home and, you know, slowly different countries are, are slowly getting back to sport. What, what are the, what are the ways you, you suggest to prescribe training to reduce injuries and improve performance and, and also in this environment to, to prevent injuries coming back? Yeah. So, I mean, thinking back to that acute chronic ratio and why it's so so appealing is it it just really says that you've you've got to earn the right to train hard, and you know statistical uh, backing for that or not that's a that's a fairly sound strength and conditioning principle. I mean, long before the acute chronic uh, workload, we were talking about progressive overload, and um, and that is a very sound sound training principle. So. You know what we understand is that we we've got to increase training loads in order in order to get adaptation, but we also understand that those those increases can't be too too big or else we're gonna gonna risk injury. Um, and it's you know it's it's nice to be able to to quantify by that, but what we're learning is because injuries are so complex and so multifactorial, it's difficult to to quantify that. So. You know, that brings us back to, well, what do you do if you're, you're a practitioner? And, you know, really, practitioners need to use their, their professional expertise and, and judgment. So, you know, for anyone who's now planning, you know, how do we return from COVID-19? You're not starting from, from scratch. You've, you've got plenty of experiences of, of bringing uh, players back after an off-season where they've potentially done nothing for, for a period of time. You've got plenty of experience probably starting training with people who've never trained seriously before and you've got some ideas about how to how to start with them and and progress them safely so 
you know, as much as people think that we're in unfamiliar territory, it's not that unfamiliar if we just start applying the, the things that we know. So, you know, in order to, to work out how to uh, return players to, to training safely, what we've got to work out is, is what have they been doing over the past couple of weeks while they've been in lockdown and what do you need them to do? What are the demands of the game? So, so how do you transition them between that gap? Um, and, you know, that's, that's going to depend on a, a conversation with, with those athletes. I mean, it depends on the level you're working with. You know, if you've got the, um, you know, a couple of academy under 15s, there's maybe a chance that they've done nothing at all. And as long as they're honest about that, you can work with that. You know, if you're working with professional athletes, chances are that they've maintained some sort of training load. It, it probably isn't going to be exactly what they would have done uh, if they were in your system. But you can, you know, they're professionals. They, they, they should be doing eight, nine, ten hours of training a week, even if that is just hitting the roads and going out and running or, you know, body weight, you know, things like that. So it's, it's not like they're going to come off zero training load. The, the important thing is to understand is what is the difference between what they were doing and what they, they need to do. And you can probably work out that they maybe not spent a lot of time under the bar recently. So, you know, maximal strength is probably suffering um, and, and high, high power, high performance capacities, things like acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, maximal velocity, those are the things that even if you, you've got the, the will, it's quite hard to do on, on your own at, own at home. You probably lack the motivation to, to really go 100%. So you know, when you're returning to training, it's, my biggest worry would be thinking about those things and think, thinking, okay, well, how do, I, how do we get back to maximum velocity safely? How do we um, add in loads of changes of, of direction and, and agility work safely uh, rather than big concerns about, well, how many hours are we spending training in a week? Does, does that resonate? Yeah, don't I, I think I think you're right. You've got to look at where where the athlete currently is in terms of what they've been doing, and what you what you want to build them up to to perform. What you know, what are the demands of your training environment, and ultimately when they get to games, um, and kind of bridging that gap. That's that's kind of what you do anyway. Like you said, as you come back from the off season and, and you start your preseason, very rarely do you do you start you know with a really tough intense session that very first day back pre-season because you've got to you know build up again um so yeah it's very, well, very good what point. i would just throw in there is um a lot of the decisions particularly in professional sport are going to be taken away from um from the guys in charge from strength and conditioning coaches things like that you know they'll will be given a date when players are going to return and we'll also be given a date when they're going to play their first match again. And, you know, it's probably not going to be as long as a, as a full preseason. So, you know, there, there's going to be constraints there. Um, and it's, it's going to be a matter of, you know, going back to, to basic periodization models and saying, well, if, if I've only got four weeks to get from this point to this point, how, how do I do that? You know, and you know, if it's four weeks, you could um, 
you could be forgiven from for for going saying well we're going to start at 50 percent of that load and go at 10 percent increase per week or, or something like that you know we we're in uncharted territory but you know those those sorts of progressions are reasonable under the circumstances yeah yeah definitely and, and like you've touched on there and and kind of put in from your your coaching background you've, you've talked before about uh, how to integrate rugby training with physical preparation what what's your approach to it with your rugby players um so i'm a, a um, an acolyte i suppose a, certainly a fan of uh, tactical periodization um so you know, um, I mentioned that uh, we coached the the Leeds Beckett second side. Uh, my co-coach over there, Mike Ashford, he and I wrote a paper on um, tactical periodization for rugby. So, so we fit squarely within that camp, in that we, you know, we just think that the the best way to to get guys ready for for rugby is to to put them into game situations where they are able to use those technical, tactical, and physical skills that that they require to be successful in the game. You know, it just it doesn't help us if we've if we've got a massive big beast, but he can't catch and pass, or he, he can't get himself into into the correct position to to carry with uh, with any kind of angle or things like that. So, sure, while um, while physical is important for for the game of rugby, it's it's also really important to be effective in the way that that you're playing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and then in terms of uh, actual training sessions, how do you how do you combine? Um, you know, if if you've got a physiological adaptation you want to get out of it, and then obviously a rugby element to it, how do you try and com- combine that working with coaches? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's all about um, manipulating constraints. You know, the the tactical periodization idea is that you you start off with the the tactical outcome that you you want to achieve. So this is where you know I often make the the analogy that you know the we can't train in a way that we go okay we're going to do our skills now so let's go catch and pass and kick for a while now we're going to learn tactics so the the coach is going to show you some stuff on the whiteboard now we need to get fit so let's let's go and run around the field for half an hour you know because that's that's just not the way we we put it together in a game so you know that the approach for for me would be to to go to the coach and say right coach so so what's the plan for for this week for today for this session you know what what are you looking to achieve and he'll go ah you know we we really need to work on our defense on the short side okay great coach so aligned aligned with that what i would really like to get out of this session is some some real good uh collision volume and some acceleration deceleration exposure so let me see your drill okay that that's great um that's probably probably gonna you know maybe not work for us because the 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 field's too big or too small so can we change it like this can we maybe increase or decrease the the player numbers can we work on the timings can we decide how how long is is the ball in play? How long are we going to rest for? And then, you know, I use my my physiological knowledge to to manipulate that session so that he can still achieve his goals, but we can get the the physical stress that we need to to create adaptation. 
yeah, I, re I really like it. it's a collaborative approach. Um, and like you say, they they get what they want out of it. But you know, most most coaches will want that good phys you know physical element of it as well. So it's um, I, I like the way you approach that. And this next question is one we uh, ask all the guests on the podcast, and it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? Yeah, I mean, I probably alluded to it earlier, but um, just obsession with size. Um, yeah. Granted, it's it's a collision game, and you know, I accept that the the more weight you take into a collision, the the more likely you are to to win that collision. But you know what I think so many people forget is, is it's also a game and it's a, it's a skill game. Um, and I just think that that people, um, neglect their, their running ability. They, they neglect, um, agility, they neglect skills and they think that they, they can become, uh, wonderful rug, rugby players in the weight room. And, you know, unfortunately you can't, uh, it's, it's the old story of the, the guy who looks like Tarzan, but plays like Jane. You know, if I would take a good rugby player that is smaller over a, over a big beast, that's not a great player every day of the week. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a very, very common one we hear. Um, so I kind of alluded to earlier, um, it's, it's really important for a multidisciplinary approach to dealing with athletes. Uh, what have you found to be the most effective way to, to develop this in an organisation? Um, so again, this is uh, something I've um, dabbled in, in in research. Um, so I suppose I've been a part of a, a couple of multidisciplinary teams, some that have been successful and some some less so. Um, and then I actually did a paper recently where we went into a very, very effective multidisciplinary team and we, we interviewed all of the, the, the people who were part of it and, and we asked them, you know, how does it work? Why does it work? Things like that. Um, and a couple of things emerged, which I suppose you could probably have guessed at, but it's always nice to, to have things confirmed with data. So um, for me, there's the, the first thing is, is clarity of vision. Um, and, you know, this gets into that stuff where the club says, well, what are we about? What are our goals? Thing, things like that. And, and often that seems quite highfalutin and, and you go, well, that's great. Now you've got, got something to write on a piece of paper and put, put over the doorway. But how does that affect my day to day? But the truth is it actually really does affect your, your day to day. Because if you aren't clear on, you know, are we a player development environment or are we a win at all costs environment? You know, you, you can get quite confused because that, that knowledge might affect or probably does affect the way you make certain decisions. So the first thing I'd say is that the, the multidisciplinary team needs to have, have a clear alignment in terms of their, their vision. Um, and then the, the next two things we, we came across is, first of all, you've, you've got to understand that multidisciplinary teams are inherently places where there's high levels of, of conflict. And that's because you've got people with different backgrounds and different, different trainings where we, we essentially got people who all have different tools. So, you know, if you, if you call me and you say, okay, well, what's, you know, we've got an injury problem. What should we do about it? I'll go, well, we should lift more. You know, let's get stronger because, you know, strength reduces injuries. But if you ask the physiotherapist, he might have quite a different opinion on that. He might feel like we, we've got to do more, prehabilitation exercises or, or or something like that so the point is 
these different viewpoints can can lead to conflict. Um, and so the, the idea of psychological safety is to, to be able to have a place where you can, can say something that is completely opposite to what the, the other person is saying um, and, and I suppose have healthy debate about it, but ultimately know that when, when that discussion's finished or you know, when, the, when the decision's been made, whatever you said in that conversation is not going to be held against you and there's not going to be brought up later or, or spoken about to, to someone else. It's all, all got to be open and honest and, and in, the, in the spirit of, of you know, constructive criticism, open discussion, things like that, which is, is a very difficult thing, thing to do. But in environments where you've got that, it's, um, it's particularly effective. You know, and once you've got that that idea, then then you are able to get into a place where you can look for continuous improvement because you can get healthy feedback. You know, you can you can go to your to your colleagues and your your coworkers and your other MDT members and say, well, you know, what do you think of this? You know, is is this a good idea? And and you're gonna get an honest answer rather than an an answer that's uh, that's not gonna help you, but is gonna make you feel better at the at the end of the day. And you know, when, once you start pulling that back, that curtain, and start getting honest feedback, then you, then you, your improvements start becoming incremental. Um, so, so those for me are are the underpinning things. You've got to got to have alignment and vision. You've got to have an environment of psychological safety, and then this this attitude of continuous improvement. Um, the the things that go go on top of that is that expertise is really really useful you know people who are really great at their job are going to be great in multidisciplinary teams but what i learned from the research is that even if you are an expert even if you're the most qualified person in the world you also have to learn how to become an expert in the new environment because every environment's different every every environment's got its own idiosyncrasies and its own ways of doing things and its own language and its own ways of communication so you've got to work out a way to immerse yourself in that and get all of this knowledge that you you've got across in that environment you've got to learn how to work with new people and convey those ideas effectively and then the last thing i'd say about multidisciplinary teams is it takes time you know time is a hugely valuable resource you you need to be able to have time to sit together and talk and and understand each other and and be within each other's space. You know, one of the hardest things in the world is to to be a session coach who who comes in for two one hour sessions a week and you you arrive five minutes before your session and you leave five minutes after because you you're literally operating in a bubble. You you've got no idea what's going on in the, in the larger organisation and you you only get the the have to know messages rather than the rather than the opportunity to to be part of conversations that that determine you know the alignment in, in the whole program so yeah i, I suppose i've i've spat a, a whole lot of information at, at you there but but hopefully there's some uh, some take homes about how multidisciplinary teams can be effective yeah, no, I've been I've been scribbling some notes, so no, it's been great. Um, what uh, in terms of in terms of clarity of vision, I, I always loved that. And I think I brought it up before. I, I don't know if you read a book um, by some British British rowers. Uh, I think it's does it make the boat boat go faster, and that was their their question on every kind of 
every every uh, decision they made as a team it was like does it make the boat go faster and, and if it didn't they you know they get rid of it so they they had that clarity of vision of whatever they did it was to improve their performance um and and, and on that what what role or i guess is that something that's kind of uh driven by the leaders or or do you find that the best results are when that clarity visions kind of come from the, the the team as a group? So, I mean, that that's quite interesting because that wasn't something I was managed I managed to uh, to work out from the the research. Um, essentially, I think it can come a, around a few ways. I think that if you get a group of like-minded people together, it it can just emerge. You know, it's you. You know, multidisciplinary teams in, in sport, at least, or professional sport, are typically not that big. It's, it's only four, five, maybe six people. So you, you could have a, a, you know, a happening of chance where you, where you just happen to get a really great team together. And I think that people can think back to times in their careers where, where you've gotten three or four guys that, that just vibe with each other and, and that makes for a really easy working environment. Um, I think you can can do it by consensus or or by choice or you know you the leaders within the group can say listen guys I think this is is what we really need to do can we buy buy into that um, I think that's a way to do it and I think that in a lot of organisations it's simply inherited you know if you um, if you walk into Manchester United I can't imagine that uh, that people are going to mess be messing around saying well you know you on day one of your of your job have an opportunity to to talk about the vision I think they're going to tell you exactly what the the vision is and they probably wouldn't have recruited you if you didn't fit into that vision so yeah I think there's there's a few different ways to get there um, but you know whichever way you get there I think it's a really important factor yeah no, I, I guess what you alluded to was earlier in your answer is that all those those different multidisciplinary teams are in different environments and have kind of developed. You know, a part of it is you know you try to develop it, but some of it kind of happens naturally as well. I guess it's it's very interesting uh, topic. Um, now uh, you mentioned that that research on multidisciplinary uh, disciplinary teams. Um, you're producing a lot of applied research. What? What would you recommend to people trying to improve this area of research? Because it's really important to get that, that applied stuff out there. And it's always interesting to see these different environments and how people are working. Yeah, I mean, I've got to um, give, a, a, yeah, just mention to um, a couple of guys that I worked with at, at Leeds Beckett here in uh, Ben Jones and, and Kevin Till, because I just think that they are probably probably the masters of, of applied research and um, they've they've got phd students working in organ professional sporting organizations all over yorkshire and they are producing stuff that is is really impactful um and yeah so i'm gonna just say unashamedly that i've i've learned a huge amount from them and what ben always says uh which i think is is probably the most important thing is make sure that your your research is useful not interesting so you know, if you if you give a person a, a GPS monitor or a heart rate monitor or you know, a gym aware or something like like that, you can collect data. And you know, once once you've got data, you can can find the patterns. But you know, as this is probably something that happened to me at the end of my PhD. I spent two years uh, with GPS units strapped strapped to the back of rugby players, and the coaches asked me about it at the end. Um, 
and I managed to to talk for about half an hour and they went, oh, okay, that's great. So the take take home message is this. And then and then they were done. And I thought, gee, well, that's that's amazing. That's two years worth of work that's been condensed into a 20 minute conversation. And now they know what I know. So, you know, the the point is you you can't just give people more information. You you've got to try and solve problems for them. So anyone who is is looking to do an applied research project, I would start with tr talking to the, the people in the environment and find out what the performance problems are that they are struggling with or wrestling with at the moment um, or things that they would like the answer to and then try and build your research projects around that. Yeah, no, that's great. I've got to say that's something that uh, Dan Tobin was very good at, who I worked with uh, at Gloucester, who, and he did tons at, at Leinster and, and kind of looked at it for like, internal research within his club was, you know, what are our problems that we're trying to solve or um, kind of training techniques that we want to improve or get, you know, get better results at, and then actually doing a study on that and doing it in their environment and, and seeing how that can actually, so you get some good performance improvements, plus you get more information about it. And it just keeps adding those bits of information to your kind of program as a whole. And it was, it was uh, really nice to be a part of that. Um, but yeah, like obviously great to hear that those guys are, are doing a lot up in Yorkshire. I'm aware of both those guys. Um, so it'd be good to get in touch with them and, and hear what they're doing. Um, again, another question we, we ask all the, all the guests on the podcast is what advice would you give to an up and coming strength coach? Um, just get out there and coach. Um, you know, I'm teaching on the, um, on the master's course at, at Leeds Beckett. We, we had a, a probably advanced masters in strength and conditioning or, or, or whatever it's, it was called. Um, and from year to year, we, we saw a massive difference. You know, the, the first cohort we had were, was a lot of guys who were really, really keen on strength and conditioning and exceptionally book smart. Um, but, but no one had put themselves out there and, and, or not no one, but few of them had put themselves out there and, and done internships and, and things like that. And it just, um, you know, it's, it, it was a real, um, real difficulty for them later on because no, whether you've got a master's or not, no one wants to hire a strength and conditioning coach with, with no experience, but also they, they were actually struggling to, to answer the applied questions because they just didn't have a frame of reference for those things. You know, fast forward a year later and the, the message had gotten around that if you, if you want to get out of this course and, and get a job, you, you need some experience. And the guys were out there and they were getting their hands dirty. Um, and the, the quality of the discussion and the quality of the work that came out of, of those guys was, was massively improved. So, yeah, the, the biggest thing is just get your hands dirty. It doesn't matter if, you, if you're training your, your auntie or, or your nephew. Um, you know, there's, there's no substitute for, for time in the weight room and, and writing programs and, and trying to figure out how that all fits to get together. Yeah, there's no substitute for experience, is there? And I always say as soon as you can, whether it's, you know, uh, other athletes or just general population, that the more people you coach, you know, early in your career, the better. It's, um, it's massive. Um, and any, any books or resources um, you'd recommend, whether it's podcasts or online training courses or anything? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is quite a frequent question on a lot of podcasts, and, and I've got one that I haven't heard mentioned too often. Um, probably the, the book that, that really got me excited about strength and conditioning was um, Boyd Epley's Path to Athletic Power. And Boyd Epley was, um, I don't know if you, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm teaching you to suck eggs here, but he was one of the originators of the NACA and he started the um, Husker Power Program at University of Nebraska. His, his name rings a bell, but I haven't heard of the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the book's just, just great. It's, um, it's real easy to do, to read. It's, it's not particularly complicated. Um, but the training training programs within their work they work like a bomb um, and I think for me what you know at that point I'd, I'd been exposed to training programs I knew my my sets and reps and in, intensities and and even some periodization but but this was the first time I'd seen a system and a system that that worked for athletes from their their first year in university to their last that progressed them all the way through a system that that was uh, you know, appropriate. They, they had plans for in-season, out-season, off-season, you know, it just, and it was so easily communicated. You know, those, those programs there, they, they were working with a massive number of athletes, 500 athletes with probably 10 coaches. And I, I can imagine that everyone was absolutely clear on what needed to happen on the weight room floor every single day. Um, yeah. So if you, if, if the guys out there haven't read it, I, I think it's a, it's a hidden gem. I know, definitely uh, check that one out. Uh, and uh, again, new well, newish questions to the podcast. What uh, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Oh no, I, I don't think so. I think <laughs> I think, I think we've we've covered a, an an absolute uh, huge amount at the moment. So no, I've, I'm I'm all out. <laughs> uh, and where can people learn more about you? Um, so I've, uh, I've been using my lockdown time to, to upskill. So, um, I've, I've learned to do a website in R, which I'm, I'm quite optimistic about. Oh. So, you know, probably the first, uh, first place to get me is Jason CT. That's, uh, T E E at, oh gosh. See, you can see I'm not practicing. <laughs> it's www.jasonctee.co.za. Um, so I'm on that. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at also at Jason CT, and also on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to get hold of me. as one of those three. Yeah, cool. And we'll we'll share uh, all the links to those in the show notes. Um, and and yeah, like just it was it was great to kind of stumble onto that article of yours. And, and I'm sure there's there's tons more to come. Um, so yeah, thanks for taking the time to to talk about it with us and and your career and experiences. It's been great chatting with you, and all the best for the future. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for for having me on. Um, it's uh, I was looking down the the list of people you've had on the the podcast earlier, and um, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic group. So um, yeah, the privilege is all mine. No, oh, thanks, Jason. So some great insights there into how we can better use sports science. Um, and like I said before, I love the stuff on the multidisciplinary teams. Um, it's always stuff that we're, we're working on in rugby to improve. Um, so thank you, Jason, for that. It was uh, great to talk to you and all the best for the future. In the meantime, guys, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn or Spotify, whatever you use for podcasts. And of course, give us a five-star review. Keep checking us out at rugbyrenegade.com and all the social media. 
um, and stay tuned. There are tons more podcasts. One of the benefits of lockdown has been stuck at home and just on Skype. So we've got tons more coming. So please subscribe. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.